Alpaca Pals, like many, my job went fully remote in 2020, and it's remained that way. Earlier this year, I decided to take advantage of my ability to work from anywhere. I packed up and I went to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I spent 10 glorious days there, balancing work with exploring the city, eating, hiking, swimming, and just hanging out. It was a new approach to travel that I hadn't experienced before, and I really liked it. My decision to work from another city is not unique. In the last two years, we've seen a massive pandemic-driven shift toward remote work. For lots of people, this has meant that they are suddenly able to work from anywhere. We are seeing traditional notions of work evolving as more and more folks take the leap and become location independent. According to data from MBO Partners, in 2019, there were 7.3 million Americans who identified as digital nomads. But between 2019 and 2020, this figure rose by a staggering 49% to 10.9 million. Then in 2021, the number of American digital nomads surged up to 15.5 million people. So what does this huge embrace of digital nomadism mean for travel? Like any community, there are like literally any group of human beings. They're going to be nice people and they're going to be jerks and there's going to be everything in between. You know, I've drunk the Kool-Aid and I think that for the most part, nomads are pretty awesome people. This is Alpaca My Bags, the responsible travel podcast here to help you travel in a way that's better for you and for the planet. I'm Erin Hines, travel writer, accompanied as always by my producer, Katie Lohr. Today, we're talking about all things digital nomadism with travel couple and writers, Brent and Michael. They've been digital nomads for several years and write the fantastic newsletter called Brent and Michael Are Going Places. But before we get into the show, make sure you're subscribed. Go and hit the follow button right now if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the episodes we have lined up this season. If you want to stay connected, you can also follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Pod. And if you want to support us in an extra special way, you can become a part of the Alpaca Pal Herd on Patreon. We also always love to hear from you, so you can DM or even email us anytime. All our contact info is in the show notes. So Katie, have you ever tried working remotely? You know what? I actually seriously considered it after your trip to Puerto Vallarta. After you came back, I was like, man, Aaron's trip was really, really nice. And I was thinking about doing a week-long trip to New York City. And I told you a little bit about it in the past, but I decided to actually cancel it because real like real talk, I'm in the midst of building a fence in my backyard and it's like thousands of dollars. <laughs> so I was just like... And also I have to build it. So I have to be home for the summer to deal with this fence thing. But once things start to settle again, I'm actually seriously considering going to New York and working remotely from there because I also want to check out some of the theater scene. I want to check out the gay village. I want to check out Stonewall. There's a whole bunch of things in New York that I want to eat a lot of food and drink a lot of cocktails. So like, I can just picture already how great of a week I would have just 
working from a little Airbnb or something during the day, and then exploring all the New York City life nightlife all by myself, too, is what I was kind of thinking was doing it solo. Okay, it's funny that we're recording this now because we actually recorded this episode with Brent and Michael a couple months ago. And when we met with them, I hadn't actually gone to Puerto Vallarta yet. And it was in chatting with them that I was inspired to go because they told me how much they loved spending a few months in Puerto Vallarta. So they really inspired me and like kicked my butt into gear. And so I went and I felt like it was a really different type of trip compared to what I normally do. I think first of all, it was very slow. I don't know how else to put it. I never felt pressure to tick things off of my list because I went into the trip really thinking this was just about like getting to know my neighborhood while I casually work. I didn't treat it as a go, go, go kind of trip like I normally do. I mean, I always like to slow travel, but I also like to be busy. So when Luke and I travel, we'll usually like do a lot throughout the day. But on this trip, I just had a very like slow day. I would work early in the morning, stop working around three, and I never really had a plan. I would just go out and wander through the neighborhoods, eat some tacos, go to the beach. I just never had a plan. And it was really nice. And 10 days there, was the perfect amount of time for me because I felt like I really got to know Puerto Vallarta and I didn't put pressure on myself to do a lot of like the day trips and stuff. I really wanted to just focus on Puerto Vallarta and I was able to really do that, which was nice. Yeah, honestly, like I kind of want to spend 10 days working remotely just so I can like go to the grocery store and see like all the cool different things that exist there, <laughs> like make some dinner at a little Airbnb and just kind of sit on a balcony and drink wine and observe the world. Like I, it's just a change of scenery that I think I would love more than anything rather than going to see all the things go, go, go. I mean, if I was in New York, I would 1000% be tempted to go do all the things. And I think that was originally part of my plan. But it was all kind of revolving around like, what's close to me? What can I get to quickly after work? The idea of me just like, it's lunchtime. I need some food. I'm going to like pop by a bodega and get a sandwich and then come back and just like munch on it while I wrap up like rest of my editing. I love that idea. Am I romanticizing it too much? Like what? <laughs> I love it. You're not because that's really what it was like. I actually did that. Like every day on my lunch, I would walk to the nearby market and just shop for like veggies and produce and I had my little routine there, which was nice. I could have done it for much longer. I could have been there for three months. The only reason I wasn't is because I have a partner and a cat at home that would not be happy about <laughs> <Yes>. that. <laughs> so we're slowly working towards potentially all three of us going and doing this. We just need to work on the job situation a bit. Overall, it was an amazing experience and I hope to, to do it again sometime soon. That's the one thing I'm struggling with is like not feeling guilt doing it by myself because I would, you know, I've never done solo travel by myself either. So I really want to get some solo travel in, but I feel so guilty leaving Mark and Joe at home. I Don't. feel so guilty. I know. Okay. Well, I do feel a bit guilty, but honestly, I've told this to people before. When we take trips apart, Luke is on a trip right now. Like he's up at a cottage in Muskoka. When we take these times apart, it strengthens our relationship because we come back to the relationship so fresh. We have so much to talk about. 
it reminds us how much we like spending time together because we have a little bit of space to miss each other. It adds excitement to our relationship. So actually, like every time one of us pitches that we we go and do our own thing for a bit, like the other one is in full support. The thing is, I love that. I don't know that I could leave him for a full month. Little blips, like 10 days, two weeks, that I can do for sure. Okay, so... I wanted to talk to you about something that we noticed while we were both traveling this summer, spring, whenever that was, <laughs> about like our experiences on TikTok when we swapped out our SIM cards. So do you want to like kind of throw it out all, all on the table and like what it is that I'm thinking here? Yeah, I'll lay the groundwork first because I think an important thing to know is that TikTok shows content to people based on your SIM card that's in your phone. So when I'm in Toronto and I have my Canadian SIM card in my phone, the algorithm pushes my content primarily to people that are nearby. So in Toronto and across Ontario, it will push content out like further to other countries even sometimes, but usually it'll do some testing and see where it's picking up and then focus on that area. So what I've noticed is when you switch your SIM card, so for example, the first time I noticed this was when I was in Portugal last fall, I put in a Portuguese SIM card and suddenly my TikToks were going out to people local to Portugal, like anyone who is in Portugal. And I also noticed like the content that was served to me was all Portuguese. And it was kind of fun because I would watch these TikToks and not understand them. <laughs> and I would send them to my friend who speaks Portuguese. And I'd be like, can you can you translate this for me so I can understand <laughs> this joke? So this is important to know because when I went to Mexico, I noticed something different when I switched my SIM card. So throughout Portugal, I posted... A couple TikToks about my trip. And I noticed overwhelmingly so much support coming from local people. I got a lot of comments from people sharing tips or just saying, welcome to my city. It, it felt very supportive. When I went to Puerto Vallarta, I posted a couple times and one, one of my TikToks actually drew a lot of negative attention. I made a joke about how whenever I travel somewhere, I do dream about moving there. Now, it was a joke, like that's how I intended it. But of course, like intentions don't always have the same impact that you expect. And people, local people that watched it took it very literally and were commenting to me, don't move here, don't come here, we don't want you, we're tired of of digital nomads coming here and like taking our property, filling up the city. And after that, like I, I actually apologized like one by one to everyone and explained like this was actually a joke. I have no intention of moving to Puerto Vallarta. But I talked with other bloggers that I met while I was in Puerto Vallarta and they told me the same thing, that they were feeling a bit of hostility whenever they posted. And so this got me thinking about how First of all, this is something that differentiates TikTok from Instagram in terms of the algorithm. You normally don't get exposure to like local communities when you're posting. It's mostly going towards like your already um, developed community on Instagram. So with TikTok, you're getting exposure to people that you normally wouldn't. And I think it can provide like an interesting picture into how people are feeling about tourists, but also about digital nomads and or expats and immigrants. It gives you this pulse that Instagram doesn't. I noticed this and I thought it was really interesting. So in the future, we might dig into this a little more deeply on the podcast. Yeah, there's a lot to explore here around like TikTok's 
just ability to tap into these local communities. It's really interesting because when I was in Portugal, one of the videos that came across my screen was a Portuguese man talking about the impact of people moving to Portugal because it's so cheap from other places and how he it was the same messaging. He just wasn't stoked about it and wanted people to reconsider. One fun thing that did happen, one of the natural pools that we went to go swim at um, on Madeira Island It was one of the ones that weren't as popular. There's three major ones on the island. So we went there and we had a great time. And I posted a video, kind of like a little recap video to TikTok. And a whole bunch of Portuguese people were commenting on me on it being like, where is this? And I know they were Portuguese because they were commenting in Portuguese. And I had to translate it and be be like, oh, they're all asking like where this is. So it was kind of cool connecting with locals and just kind of telling them about little hidden gems that they didn't know about that I was finding. And I was like, ooh, am I from, am I Portuguese now? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, TikTok is so cool that way. And I love it for that reason that it it can just tap into so many communities in such a unique way that like you and I've talked about many times before, Instagram just can't. Well, should we get into this episode with Brent and Michael because they are both amazing and this conversation is also amazing? Yes, I'm so excited to share this convo with you, Alpaca Pals. Let's do it. Every now and again, we like to recommend a podcast that we're excited to listen to. Vanishing Postcards is back. Hosted by Texas native Evan Stern, its latest season invites listeners to ride shotgun as he motors west, cross-country on Route 66. From a dance in Tulsa to an Amarillo eating contest and a morning on the Santa Monica Pier, Vanishing Postcards explores how the past, present, and future of this most iconic of roads is revealed through the stories of people and places found driving it today. Perfect for when you need a breather, but don't have the luxury of hitting the open road yourself. You can join this trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. And tell Evan we say hi. So welcome to Alpaca My Bags, Michael and Brent. I mentioned in the intro that you both are digital nomads. And so obviously, I want to start by asking, where in the world are you now? And I'd also like to know what your favorite thing about wherever you are is so far. Well, first, I want to tell you how excited we are to be here. I've been listening to you guys for two seasons now. And you're absolutely one of my favorite podcasts. And you always leave me with a big smile on my face. So just really thank you for having us. Um, we're currently in Sitges, Spain, after spending a, a quick three weeks in the United States. And my favorite thing here is probably the sound of the ocean. We were in Croatia for three months, and the Adriatic is absolutely beautiful, um, but it's really mostly calm, and you don't hear a lot of surf. So I've loved going for walks and hearing the crashing waves. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's nothing like that sound. I love it, too. Um, So I know you've both been digital nomads for quite some time now. Could you share with us the story of how you became digital nomads? I'm curious about how the idea to become nomads came up and then how you took that from being an idea to real life. Also, just like your feelings about it. Was it scary? Was it something you debated a lot? Or was it like an absolute yes, let's just do it? Give us the details. (laughs) Well, the short story is... It was the night of the election in 2016. We were at an election party expecting Hillary Clinton to be president. And 
early on in the evening, it became clear that Trump was going to be elected. And so it was not a very fun party. Uh, we left early. Everybody left early. We were at a very morbid, depressing drive home. And I turned to Michael and I said, let's sell the house and move the country. I, I don't like the direction this country is going. Let's leave. And Michael thought for a couple of seconds and said, OK. And oh, then wow. within uh, two months, we had, we had sold the house. And then we had... I want to emphasize the story about Donald Trump, that drive home, is literally true. That is not dressed up for a fun story to tell. <laughs> we were in the car feeling suicidal. He looked at me and said, let's leave the country. So that was that is the genesis of it. But what's sort of funny is that when we decided to do this, we'd never heard the term digital nomads. Mm. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were just going to go and live abroad. And, and at one point during that year, I was reading the Sunday New York Times. I was reading this article about digital nomads. And as I was reading this description, I was thinking, they're talking about this thing called co-living and how these people live. And I'm thinking, this sounds like what we want to do. So we started researching digital nomads and co-living. I, I think our friends thought we were all blowing off steam when we said we were going to do this. And then six weeks later, the house was sold. And a year later, we were on the road. First, I just have to say it's the Donald Trump story is funny to me because I think that everyone knows where they were the minute that Donald <laughs> Trump was elected. I was on a flight to Vietnam and I remember landing and the first thing I did was like check my phone and just was like, oh, it was like a 15 hour flight, right? So when I got on the plane, I still had hope. But when I got off, it was like all hope crushed. It was just so surreal, the whole thing. Yeah, it really was. So your writers, you knew that you could continue earning income in the way you did at home as you traveled, as you went into this lifestyle. Yeah, that's what's sort of interesting that sort of it's sort of like, uh, you know, Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz. We always had the power, you know, and we didn't really know it. We could have done this at any time. And, and I think that's why we talked about it, because we have maximum flexibility. Why are we choosing to live in one of the most expensive cities on Earth, Seattle, but yes, I, I'm a screenwriter and a novelist, and Michael is also a novelist. And now we do a newsletter about our travels called Brent and Michael Are Going Places. It's a little complicated. I mean, we did have friends and family, and Brent's dad, you know, is, is a, a widower, and we spent a lot of time with him. So there were things that were, were keeping us there until this moment in time where we decided, okay, now it's time to, to get a move on. Uh, but yeah, the career-wise, we knew that we were very fortunate that we could go anywhere we wanted in the world. And you know, maybe sometimes we'd have to get up really early or stay up really late to take a phone call. But for the most part, we could do what we do wherever we're at. We're particularly well suited to do this, I think, you know, because we don't, a lot of our friends have to be in touch with an office constantly. We don't have to do that. We can check in once a, once a week if we want. So, yeah. So I will tell you, I had one little blip as a digital nomad, not really because it was just a week, but I spent a week on the East Coast working. And I have to say, it wasn't as glamorous as I expected it would be because <laughs> I ran into a lot of problems. I was on PEI. There isn't great Wi-Fi everywhere on the island. If a hotel or an Airbnb says they have Wi-Fi, the question is, how good is that Wi-Fi? And I, I hadn't done it before, so I didn't know to ask that. And sure enough, like it's 9 a.m. I'm trying to log on for a call and the Wi-Fi cannot hold the call. And so I actually found it like quite stressful. It was a good learning experience. Like now I know that you have to really check for those things. But I think working a job like a corporate job, like what I have as a digital nomad wouldn't be quite as easy because like my day is very structured according to like the needs of the company, which doesn't lend itself quite as well to like living somewhere 
somewhere else. But I'm sure I could sort it out, like if I actually did it long term. But from that little experience, I was I was pretty stressed out. The time zones are weird. You know, I do a lot of uh, pitch meetings, but I do them in the evening typically. And you know, so I sort of stress about it all day, and and I'm not necessarily you know I've worked all day, and so I'm kind of exhausted. And yeah, there are there are absolute challenges. And of course, there are also great benefits. At this point, we would certainly not trade it. And so how do you decide where you'll go? Are there criteria that you think about? And I also need to know, do you ever disagree about what place you want to go next? (laughs) Is it ever a discussion to decide? Oh, yes. Oh, it's (laughs) never that. How we decide. So our first year, I was really uptight about it. And I planned everything out in advance. And after the first stop, everything fell apart. And that (laughs) sort of forced us to become more adaptable at that point. In the first year, we were sort of looking for co-living and, and digital nomad places that we really, you know, we needed to go there so we could have something we felt comfortable with. But then after that first year, something surprising happened, a couple of surprising things. The first one is that we started to develop a network of digital nomad friends and we sort of formed this community. And then we also started learning about these other places we'd never heard of before that were interesting places to be digital nomads that your regular tourists might not hear of. So it became this combination of this sounds really interesting, like an island in, in Kolanta or in Thailand or a place in Vietnam. But then also our friends were going there. It sort of is a constant state of, of flux. I said I had a vision before we did it. And part of the vision was right. But part of the vision was wrong. I sort of thought, oh, we would be living in Paris and Rome and London. And, you know, we've lived in those cities. And it's like, I don't really want to live in a big city, A, it's a city and it's expensive and it's busy. And, and B, sometimes things are even more spectacular when they're not famous. Sometimes famous things are legitimately spectacular, but sometimes they're not. And sometimes there is something just as spectacular that isn't famous. Also a lot easier to get to know the locals because they're not jaded. They're actually really excited to meet us. And oftentimes they're confused as to why we're living in their community. I'm actually the fussy one in the relationship. Like, like I'm high stress, I'm high maintenance, but Michael has a very narrow Uh, temperature parameter. He doesn't like things too cold. He doesn't like things too hot. So that's a factor. Um, Unless I'm taking pictures, then I'll suffer anything. We try to follow the spring or the summer. Um, So all these things, you know, friends, uh, things we've read, things we've heard about, a lot of word of mouth. It's typically word of mouth. Somebody has been someplace. In terms of disagreement, we have both come to a point where the whole world seems interesting. Everything seems like it's going to be interesting. And so we're kind of intrepid and and willing to kind of go anywhere. And if he's more excited about a place, I'm like, okay, that's fine. The only thing we ever disagree on a little bit is the length of time. I tend to be, want to move a bit more quickly. Like after a month, I'm starting to get itchy feet. After two months, I can potentially be driving him crazy. And I'm I'm a true slow mad. I like the idea of being somewhere for two to three months. If it's a place that we like, if we really are you know rocking the vibe but that works out because sometimes for different reasons we need to travel a little more quickly so we will hit four places in two months and then i know he's getting a little tired be like sure absolutely we're going to go to croatia we're going to park it for three months and we will just stay there we're in a relationship we we are good to each other and compromise generally we stay we live places between one and three months and then we stop somewhere in between like we'll stop in budapest or uh yeah someplace that might be more touristy and we'll stay there for a week or two. Yeah. Oh, that's a good system. I like that. So mm-hmm. you do take time to be like, quote unquote, tourists mm-hmm. in certain yeah. spots. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. But then we also are able to sort of relax and, and get to know a place and it becomes home. And 
to, and then we can get work done. You know, we can really focus on our work. I love the term slow mad. I don't think I've ever heard it before. It's such a great, great description. We thought we had made it up, but it turns out it pre-existed our, <laughs> our, our coining the term. <laughs> I also just love hearing the dynamics and relationships of, of how people travel together. My partner literally last night was laughing because he was like, I don't think I've ever chosen where we travel to usually what happens is i will constantly be pitching things and then like eventually he'll say yes digital nomadism is on the rise and as a result countries all over the world are introducing digital nomad visas but did you know that many new digital nomad visas require you to buy health insurance That's right. And actually, some destinations require proof that you have travel insurance, even for a brief trip. But let's be real. Travel insurance is something you should be investing in regardless of if it's required. That's why I always get World Nomads travel insurance. Whether you're staying in a country for a few days or a few months, it's important to remember that some countries' medical systems are fragile and have limited services and capability. Having insurance like World Nomads helps ensure that you don't become a burden on the local people and economy if you end up needing medical help. World Nomads has simple and flexible benefits that include trip cancellation, emergency medical expense, baggage cover, and more. Buy cover for your trip anytime, anywhere, while at home or ready on the road. Benefits limits, conditions, and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get a quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. So I'd love to demystify who digital nomads are and what they do, because I see, and I'm sure you've seen it too, this very repetitive image of digital nomads on social media. I think We've seen it increasingly throughout the pandemic as well as more people realize that um, the lifestyle is accessible to them. Um, So I'd say like the sort of stereotype that I see is usually young women or a young couple living in their converted vehicle, selling ebooks, doing brand deals. Um, So could you describe the nuance of who digital nomads are? It's also not accurate to those people because we've met a lot of those influencers and they, they talk frankly about their lives to us. And it's yeah. not at all what you would see on Instagram. So it's not even true for these people. Yeah. <laughs> digital nomads are complicated people like everybody else. There's all kinds of different people. And, and digital nomads can change throughout their time as digital nomads. I always, it depends on what part of the digital nomad elephant you're touching or the Instagram elephant you're touching. Because you can certainly go on Instagram and find those people that you're talking about. But if you take some time and do some research, you can find people who are doing other things. There's a, a young Polish woman named Eva Zubek who is one of the biggest Instagram travel influencers. And she is the opposite of what you're talking about. I mean, she's much more realistic about what her life is like. You know, she'll show herself in her her van at, you know, two in the morning as the rain is pounding outside or she got hit by a cow one time and, you know, she, she shared with that. So you can find that. You can, you know, Google digital nomads and, you know, responsible travel, all kinds of different things and find people who are not selling eBooks and doing that sort of things. And Frankly, most digital nomads, you're not going to see them publicly anyway because they're just living their lives. Instagram Instagram doesn't give us a realistic view of pretty much anything, including digital nomads. But I mean, it feels like we're in the midst of like a nomad backlash the last couple of years. There's been this backlash against nomading. And and it frustrates me because like any community, there are like literally any group of human beings, they're going to be 
nice people and they're going to be jerks and there's going to be everything in between. You know, I, I've drunk the Kool-Aid and I think that for the most part, nomads are pretty awesome people. And I think it's for a lot of different reasons. I think travel attracts a certain kind of person who's sort of more, more open-minded and more willing to engage. And I also think travel changes a person. If you're doing it right, then you become a better person. And I'm kind of jazzed. I mean, you know, the first year it's like, we have yet to meet sort of an a-hole no, nomad. That's less true. I mean, we've met people, you know, that we don't necessarily connect with right away or that rub us the wrong way after five years. But I think we're a really good group of group of people for the most part. I love nomads. We meet great people all the time. Well, and this it's not the same, but just my experience like traveling in hostels long term. I've I've lived in hostels for up to 9 months at a time. The amount of times that I would come across someone that I didn't like quote unquote like or jive with or it was very rare because we had that sort of common point of entry that we we were both very interested in the world. And in general, I would say like the travel community, when you're traveling long term, you encounter people that are very like minded and and they're generally really good people. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like they've sort of rejected American consumerism oftentimes and are living a more modest, simple lifestyle. I mean, there's definitely sort of the contingent that is doing it for the low cost of living or to evade taxes or, or whatever. They're entrepreneurs. That's their business. And I may not, you know, mesh with those people. I, this is why I read all these nasty articles and, stare, you know, and I, and I think, boy, that isn't my experience at all. And part of me thinks it's just clickbait. Well, and I mean, we see these criticisms of travel in general as well. Like I've been criticized, personally been criticized for flying. Like people have said to me, why do you fly so much? You're flying several times a year. Like if you care about responsible tourism, why are you doing that? There's always a way to criticize like every single community. So I want to dig into some of the criticisms that are floating around on the internet about digital nomadism, and then maybe we can unpack them a little bit. One common criticism is that digital nomadism is reserved for the privileged and that because digital nomads are often temporarily in a place, they don't have any stake in working toward positive change in the community that they're staying in. So for example, they might not challenge gentrification like someone who lives in a place permanently or long-term might. Just anecdotally, I have seen digital nomads selling ebooks that use low cost of living as a selling point. For example, move to Costa Rica or Bali because you can work from there for cheap and you'll have a really amazing lifestyle because you'll get to pay low rent and eat street food the whole time. I know from knowing both of you that this is not representative of the digital nomad community. All that said, I do think it's true that anyone who has the flexibility and base funds to become a digital nomad definitely does benefit from privilege of some sort. And there are a lot of ways that digital nomads have access to benefits in a community that locals might not have. So I've said a lot. What are your thoughts? The first thing that popped in my mind is in terms of the privilege, we've thought and talked a lot about privilege. And the fact of the matter is, as two white North American cisgender males, we have a lot of privilege. We write about that. We're aware of it. But that privilege is going to exist no matter where we are. So the question for us becomes, 
is our privilege because I'm, 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 unfortunately I'm not, you know, Mother Teresa. I'm not going to go out and give away all of the money I've, I've worked for and, and be that wonderful of a person. So is my privilege better off my staying in Seattle, living in my you know, house in Seattle, spending my money in Seattle, or am I better off going to a country like Bulgaria, which has lost 2 million people since the end of, of the Cold War and is economically struggling? Am I better off going there and yes, benefiting because I'm able to afford a nice apartment that costs me considerably less, but by the same token, I am injecting money into the Bulgarian economy. So I, that that's the, the privilege part of how I feel about that. You want to talk about well, what we have access to? Yeah, I mean, I find this argument really sort of infuriating because it's so at odds with my personal experience and the experience of almost every nomad I've ever met. If you breeze into town and don't engage or even observe the community, I guess you can be individualistic, but I seriously am perplexed by any, how anybody could do this, how anybody could live in Mexico City or live in Bali or live in Thailand or live in Vietnam and not absorb what the local culture is and be impacted by the disparity between the two lifestyles, you know, the Western lifestyle and the lifestyle in the country. And then for me and for every nomad I've ever met, these abstract issues of economic inequality and disparity become real in a way that oh my gosh, this person that is my friend, the world is so unjust. And I knew that on some intellectual level, but now I know it on a practical level. This person that's so awesome and so talented and so smart has access to so much less of the world than I do. I don't know how that can't change you and make you more open-hearted. And then these, you know, we started traveling, we were vaccinated. Uh, it looked like uh, COVID was waning last year and we decided to, to begin traveling again and we were very thoughtful about it. We were we were going to be masked and, you know, we got a lot of crap, a lot of criticism from people. How dare you travel? This is so irresponsible. It was interesting. We ended up in, in Istanbul and we got to know this fellow in our apartment building who had, he'd been raised in extreme poverty, poverty that shocked me hearing him tell his stories. You know, he didn't go to school and he lost everything with COVID and he had, he had worked, he had eventually worked, he started selling dark glasses in, in the Grand Bazaar and he worked his way up to owning a shop and then he lost everything when COVID hit because of course they don't have a, a, a social safety net in Turkey. And finally, tourism is starting again and he's so grateful and all these people that we're meeting, his friends that he's introduced, they're so grateful. And I'm thinking, well, it's really easy for privileged Westerners to say, well, don't travel, stay at home, you know, you're being irresponsible. And I'm hearing from these Turkish people my life was destroyed. Please come, because if you don't come, I'm literally not going to be able to eat. I'm getting a little heated because, because I have met so many, you know, in Mexico, and it's a day economy where if people do not work that day, they do not eat that night. Families do not eat that night. I don't know. We could be, we could have been locked down in the United States, but I felt really good that we were in Puerto Vallarta and we were able to shop from local merchants and do takeaway from local restaurants. And we donated, you know, we gave our, our stimulus to the local food bank when we got the stimulus. And I just, I felt like for me, that was the right thing to do. The issue is complicated. I, I acknowledge all of these issues that you're talking about. But nomads, we do talk about these issues. Well, even pre-COVID, I, I reject the idea that, you know, nomads, digital nomads across the board don't care anything about their community. That That's very frustrating. I can't speak for all nomads, but for us and most of the people we know, when we lived in Italy, uh, we lived in a town called Matera down in southern Italy, and we spoke to the first gay rights group that had formed, that were a gay couple, and shared our story with them. Because we, I, when I heard you know, sort of what their life was like, I cared, and I wanted to do what we could with our platform and our privilege to 
share with them and, and, you know, not inspire them, but to tell them our story so that they could think about it and, and take what they could from it. Same thing in Georgia. We lived in Tbilisi for three months and we got to know uh, Yorgi Tabagari, who is the leading gay rights activist there. And again, we used our little platform to write about the issues of, of Georgia backsliding on, on gay rights and how they've been treating you know, the, their LGBTQ population. And we've continued to, to follow that as we go along. And even it trickles down to little things like in, in Thailand, every Sunday there would be a beach cleanup that Westerners would go and participate in, as they should. You know, they're there contributing to the, the, the trash problem. So, I mean, nomading is not, we're not doing this out of altruism. You know, we, we, we love it. And we benefit massively from it. You know, we're, we have Western salaries and we're living in, often living in countries with a lower standard of living. And there's a massive benefit to us and there's massive privilege. But at the same time, I do think, you know, you have to weigh the different things that are going on. And I do think, I strongly believe that it is a net positive in the world. You know, we make these connections. We start to see that borders are not real. Borders are artificial. And they're so unjust and they're so unfair and there's so much unfairness in the world. Well, I just think it's our responsibility to know things about the places we live and then in whatever little ways we can to do something about it. You know, you make me think about something that like I personally have struggled with at times. Like obviously I also was born into a lot of privilege and I've thought about I can't change the fact that I have privilege like that will never change in my life, but I can control how I use it. And I think that that applies to the situation because you acknowledge that you have privilege in just even being able to access this lifestyle. But as you say, you're doing everything you can to make sure that you use it in the right way and give back to the communities that you're visiting and also are growing from it. I don't even know that you necessarily have to go and actively try and do positive things to be having a better impact. I, I just, having lived in Eastern Europe and seeing how many people have left the country and how many, you know, how many businesses are struggling and in Bulgaria, there's empty apartment buildings sitting there. If even if all you do is go there and rent an apartment from a landlord who doesn't have a tenant, you have taken some of the wealth out of North America and brought it to Bulgaria. And that's a good thing. I absolutely think you should do more. But I firmly believe that is better. That trade off is better than just staying at home and enjoying your Western life there. I mean, as Michael said, we talk about this a lot. And I do think you know, as more of the world, all of the world is exposed to Western modern media, they want a modern lifestyle. Everybody, understandably, they see our lifestyle and, and, and much of it is just objectively good. You know, modern medicine is objectively good. And, you know, you can't fault people for wanting to participate in that. So one way or another, these countries are going to be developed. And I mean, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, I don't want to be an apologist because I think there are a lot of problems with tourism and there's a lot of irresponsibility going on. But I do think of a lot of all of the choices in many cases, I think tourism is the least bad option, you know, because if it wasn't tourism, it's going to be some conglomerate from China coming in and vacuuming up the local seafood resource or whatever, or mowing down the, the mangrove swamp or whatever. And I personally feel very comfortable because I've had this conversation with so many people throughout the world and they are, they want us to come and they're sad or frustrated or when, when we don't come. And I know that's the legacy of colonialism and inequality and exploitation and all of that, but I really do believe that of all of the, the options, travel is maybe the least bad one in many cases. So one question I have then, I think this is 
as sort of like follow-up criticism that I've seen often. What about like when you're going to communities where, like I'll use Toronto as an example. People in Toronto are upset about Airbnb and people like renting out their apartments that way and condos that way because it's really been a player in driving up cost of living, like cost of rent in the city. And I've seen this echoed, like, especially throughout European cities, like Barcelona, for example, I know for sure, like, is a city where people are very frustrated. And this isn't just digital nomadism, but like tourism in general has driven up cost of living. So do you think like as digital nomads, choosing where, like what city you decide to go to, some cities might have more impact than others, because like you say, like in Bulgaria, there's lots of vacancy and like people can actually benefit from you renting the apartment, whereas in Barcelona, it might not be the case because there's there's not enough housing. It's messy. I, I mean, it's I messy, acknowledge, yeah. you know, because I've heard these horror stories too, and I've seen them and places that used to be you know, old town that used to be lived in by local people. Now they're all Airbnb and it it is messy. But I think, you know, and I do think it's important we try to seek out individual owners and not like conglomerates in the places we travel to. I mean, I guess all I can say is, is that it's messy, but it is ultimately there is hopefully money being injected into the local economy, which is good for everybody. Well, and we were talking about Venice earlier and how Venice has been overrun. And I, I do think we personally both seek out and and now try and write about the out of the way places that that people are not necessarily going to because the fact of the matter is you know there are what is it 8 billion people on this planet now and a lot of them are going to want to travel so this problem is with us you know digital nomads are a drop in the bucket compared to you know the vast majority of people traveling we do need to be aware and we do need to talk about them in, in a way we're early adopters adapters too and that I think nomads are more likely to go to places where people haven't gone before, and then we can call attention to these places in a good way and bring in tourist dollars. Um, you know, it's an ecosystem. I think that's a healthy part of the ecosystem. You know, the, when things do get, do get too bad in Barcelona, well, maybe you can go to this, this other lesser-known place in Spain or this lesser-known country or someplace in Africa or someplace in Eastern Europe. Even to follow up, like, on my own point, I do think that placing blame on individuals isn't always fair because in situations like this, like in Toronto, for example, much of the blame is on the local government, not so much like individuals who are deciding to rent out an Airbnb. It's not fair to place blame on them when in reality, the government should be intervening when it comes to housing and when housing is reaching a breaking point. So yeah, just wanted to bring it up because that's a really common argument that I see people making. So we've talked plenty on Alpaca My Bags about how, you know, most travelers have privilege, but that doesn't mean that we can't find um, ways to do good when we're traveling or living as digital nomads. So you've talked a little bit about it so far, but I was hoping you could give some concrete ideas for how nomads can make sure that they're contributing positively to the communities that they're living in when they're abroad. Well, I think we all have lenses that we look at the world through. For us, we're a gay couple. So often when we go to a country, we're sort of thinking, first of all, safety issues, you know, for some of the places we go. It's like, I want to do my research and know how gay friendly is this country? Am I going to be safe here? What do I need to know? But then beyond that, I also want to know, I don't care just about how I'm being treated. It's how do they treat the local LGBTQ community? 
And if I do decide to go there, we decide to go there like Turkey, it's like, okay, now that I'm here, because that is my, one of the lenses, it's not the only lens I look at the world through, but it's one of the lenses. It's like, okay, let's do some research. Is there a local gay group here, LGBTQ group that I can get to know? Um, if there is, what can I do to support them? Oh, in Istanbul, pride is illegal. You can't, you know, you can't have a, a group of gay people gathering to protest the government or to, you know, celebrate or talk about being gay. Well, I can go to pride, even though they went ahead and had it illegally, I can go there and participate. And then as a writer, I can write about my experience there. So that is one of the things that, that we do. That's one of the ways we do it. And I think everybody who travels has their, their thing. You know, maybe you as a woman, you know, you look at a place and think, you know, how safe is it for a female solo traveler? Or, you know, what is sexism like in this country? Um, you can be aware of that and you can, you can focus on that and help improve that. We're big proponents of uh, co-living, which is the concept is, you know, small personal space and big public space. And the idea is to build community. Um, and there are a lot of co-living facilities where the idea is you join a community of nomads. And the best co-living facilities are integrated into the local community. There are people that work there and they also sort of reach out to the local community. And that's been the most positive experience for us that there are programs where we benefit from them and they benefit from us. And it's an exchange, it's a meeting of minds, exchanging ideas. And that's been really positive for us. I mean, that's literally for me, for us, that's like the point of travel. You know, I want to engage with the people. I, I love to see the sites, but more than anything, I want to see the culture. And so it, it, in, in the best of all possible worlds, it has been a real positive sort of meeting of minds, a connection. And we learn from them, they learn from us. Well, one of the beautiful things about being a slow mat is, and, and this goes back to Paris's article about not becoming part of the community or caring is when you live in a place for three months and you are out shopping and buying your coffee and, and doing all the different things, you can't help but meet local people and sort of get involved and know them a little bit. Uh, in Istanbul, we live next door to this bakery called Asmali Bakery. If you're ever in Istanbul, look up Asmali Bakery and go there. And I got to know uh, uh, Rasul, the man who ran it, and learned how they barely survived COVID. And I got, I met us, he sat me down one day and we had tea together. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Turkish. We used Google Translate to have this conversation. And I met his kids and um, I worked with a local friend to get a, try and get a tutor so his son could, you know, learn to speak English better. The fact that when you're a digital nomad, you're spending longer in a place like that is conducive to building genuine relationships with local people in a way that you just cannot if you're in a city for like four days. You just like brought back a memory to being in Cuba. I spent a couple of days in Trinidad and I met this guy there like in the street, literally. My friend and I were just walking down the street and we stopped into this guy's bar and we had a drink there and he didn't speak any English and we spoke horrible Spanish. We could barely communicate with this guy. But somehow like we spent the whole night there and he said, come to my house tomorrow morning for breakfast. And we went and he showed us his home. He cooked for us. And then he took us on a hike and we like went to this waterfall and we spent a full two days with him. And we could not communicate with him like barely at all, but it's still one of the fondest memories I have of being in Cuba. And I just felt like a warmth hanging out with this guy that, you know, was really special. It was a really special experience. Yeah. That's the thing that has surprised me most about our travels that I guess I expected, I don't know what I expected, but people have turned out to be so warm and open and generous, especially, at least if you get outside the tourist areas. People are so hungry for connection. 
Michael is a historical novelist, and in one of his novels, which is set, you know, in 5000 BC, um, there are different sort of tribes around this area, and it's the uh, merchants, what do you call them? The, traders. The traders that, that move between the cities, and they sort of bring information. And I, in the best of all possible worlds, I feel like nomading is a little bit like that. We're the, the bloodstream of the world, that we travel these different communities, and we touch them, and they touch us, and then we move on, and we can say to other people, whether in person or online, we can explain what touched us, what moved us, what, what we saw. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing. If you're doing it right, you know, from my point of view, that it's a net positive. The world needs more connection, not less connection. We need to understand each other. We need to be thoughtful and listen to each other. For me, that's what nomading is. I think digital nomads are able to do that better than, uh, you know, a regular tourist. Yeah. Yeah. I can even say, like, I haven't been a digital nomad, like, proper, but I have done very long stretches of travel where, like, I'm traveling for like up to nine months at a time. And I've talked with friends about this because I have friends who say to me, oh, like I would really love to experience that, like traveling long-term rather than doing like a two-week jaunt to a country. And I always say like the thing that I find is really special about long-term travel is that you aren't governed by a schedule in the same way. When my partner and I were traveling through India, we would just wake up every day and think like, what do we want to do today? Do we want to stay in the city another day? Do we want to go somewhere else? Do we want to sit in this cafe and chat with these people all day long? You just have a sort of freedom that doesn't exist when you have like a defined period of time to be in a place. And it's really amazing. I hope that's something everyone like experiences at some point in their life. There's also this weird phenomenon. I guess I thought the first time you encounter a place or a person, it's unfamiliar and it's strange. The second time you encounter it, it is familiar because you've been here once before. And then the third time, it almost feels like home. You know, it only takes three encounters with a person to feel they suddenly they're a friend. The first time you meet a, a person for dinner, the third time, they're a friend. And the third time you, we walk around a community, it starts to feel like home. And by at the end of the second week, then it's like, oh, this is our home. And that, now the process is sort of hastened because we've done it so many times. But within two or three weeks, you know, Michael... Michael does our shopping and he'll go to the, the fruit and veg person. And the first time, you know, are they a tourist or whatever? Second time, they're familiar. Third time, Michael has got a best friend and they're, they're volunteering the best produce and throwing in, you know, free fruit that we've never tried before. And it's just people are so hungry for connection. And I think, honestly, I think this is even more true. I think America has real problems with community. But outside of America, I think people are way more eager to engage because communities are healthier a lot of, even if they're they may be financially poorer but they they feel so much healthier to me because people are more likely to engage on a personal level you know they're not all, they're not all based on cars and automobiles they're much well, more there's, pedestrian people are um collectively minded i find yes. in a way oh, that yes. like is not the case in america from my experience at least absolutely true so to wrap up do you ever feel homesick like do you ever think we would like to go back to seattle and then I want to ask you about your thoughts on a point I brought, about, brought up about Nomadic Matt in the previous season. I'll just recap it. Um, so last season, I brought up in an intro to one of the episodes that Nomadic Matt, who has a whole site built around his nomadic lifestyle, announced that he had decided to settle down. Um, he was really feeling that he was ready to have a home base and a routine. I know you had some thoughts on this um, because we chatted about it in an email. 
So share with us your thoughts. And also, like, do you ever feel homesick? Do you ever think, like, we want to go back to that home life again? What do you think the future will look like for you as digital nomads? Well, to answer the, the first part about nomadic mat settling down and, and you know, our, our view of that, I think our age comes into play here because, you know, nomadic Matt, he's in his 30s. I think he's in his 30s. He'd been traveling, you know, most of his 20s. We have friends who we met when they were in their 20s and now they're coming into their 30s. And you go through different stages in life and what you haven't had for a long time you want. So I totally understand how nomadic Matt has probably reached a point where he's like, oh, I want some stability and, you know, I want to have a house and I want, I want to do those things. Well, for me... I had 30 years of stability in Seattle. I've, I've had all the stability I want for the foreseeable future. I want to be able to go and, and have the world be changeable and seeing all these different things and having all of these different experiences. And I think that's a function of the fact that I got to do that other part of my life already. And I, you know, I've, a lot of people want to settle down and meet somebody. You know, I've got my husband and been, been together for a long time. So that's how I feel about this issue is that I'm, I'm happy where I'm at now, be, probably because I've done those things. People ask us, when are you guys going to stop? And frequently I will say, death. You know, that's that's <laughs> when I'm going to stop. I mean, I have a home. I know it sounds silly. It sounds frustrating. But I'm not kidding when I say within a week we feel at home in yeah. places. And yeah. it really does feel like our home. And now our home is wherever we're together and wherever we're with friends. And we have so many great friends all around the world, both local people and nomad people, that that is our home and that is our community. That is our our community, it feels very real to me. Frankly, it feels much more real than our, quote, home and our community back when we lived in Seattle. It feels much healthier and much more grounded. I know I, I said this a lot. I feel more rooted and grounded now than I did when we lived in Seattle because living in America, it's so easy to feel disconnected and overwhelmed and stressed and all everybody's of that. Everybody's so busy. Yeah, every, everybody's so busy. And, and that said, we do have a lot of lovely friends and family back in Seattle. And we were just visiting you know, last week, two weeks ago. And I mean, on one hand, being away for much of the year makes us appreciate those friends. I mean, the friendships that have lasted are really the core friendships. And and so I think we appreciate them more. We try to stay in touch. But it's hard, you know, and I, you know, we've reasoned to town once or twice a year and sort of expect them to throw everything aside so that they can make time for us. I feel bad about that. But, you know, life is choices. You know, you open one door and you have to close another door. But I'd homesick, no, because I, I'm so used to this life now and I so love it that I don't ever feel homesick. I wish I could have everything, you know, like, like every human being ever, I want it all. But you can't have it all, so I'll take as much as I can possibly get. And not to end on a depressing note, but it's been hard to be homesick for America over the past five years. I mean, given everything that's, that's gone on in the country and how divisive it's felt. And, and frankly, every time we go back, the, the aspects that we don't like, the commercialism and the living in a car, everywhere you have to go in a car, that makes it hard to be homesick. You get back there and you experience that. And all you can think is, I want to get back to my real life. I want to, I want to get back to where I don't have to deal with these things. And I, I think our values just fit in with much of the rest of the world yeah. better than they did in America. So it's hard to be homesick for that. I don't think we have any, I don't want to say we're like these great wise gurus. I don't want to like, we're not like invoking all these wisdom, but I, but I do think we can return home and we have a perspective and we can say to our people in America, wow, life here is really fast-paced and really materialistic. And we find that, you know, personally, I find that off-putting. And they can, like, hear that. And maybe, you know, maybe that changes them a little, you know, because a lot of people have looked at our life and said, oh, I'd really like to do that. And I, that, 
again, that feels like a net positive that maybe people are questioning some of that consumerism, that American consumerism. Um, and, and that can be a function we can play. And it's not unusual what you're saying. I have met so many Americans that mirror what you're saying, that feel the same way about America, especially like when I traveled through Asia right after Trump was elected, like so many Americans said to me that they felt like they couldn't feel connected to America in the same way anymore because it, it went against like their value system. And so I don't think it's unusual that you feel that way. And I've felt that way too, even about like my own communities here in Canada. When I travel, sometimes I think I sometimes feel like I fit in in better fit in better in outside communities than I do at home. And I think like that's something that everyone probably experiences when they travel. Well, Brent has this wonderful metaphor that he's written about uh, digital nomads being the island of misfit toys, people who leave their country, you know, long term and settle in other places often partly left because they didn't fit in. And so they, they go abroad and they meet other people that are like them. And all of a sudden they have this community of other misfit toys that, that all like, oh yeah, I didn't like that about America either. I didn't know other people felt that way. Boom, you know, we're now friends. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, leaving your country and seeing your country with the perspective of an outsider, you definitely see the things you don't like. But I've also seen things that I do like, you know, and there are things about America, you know, the willingness to sort of question everything. You know, everything is up for question in America and the innovation and the optimism. And there's a, there is a, a good part of America. Leaving America sort of in disgust sort of forced me to sort of reassess the whole country. And it hasn't all been, I think America has real problems, but there are things that I really like about America. And I think America can play a really important role in the world. You know, it needs to find that, it needs to rediscover that, that sense of openness and, and beauty again. We're sort of people without a, a country, I guess. You know, we don't really fit in in the countries where we live. We would never presume to think, you know, we're Spanish now, but we're also not American. I don't really feel like an American anymore. And so and we're citizens of the world, but that sounds a little trite. There, there is a sense of... We're nomads. Yeah, yeah, we're nomads. Well, Brent and Michael, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to chat with you. And I feel so at home chatting with you too, because we've we've discussed things online, like now for I think like the past year or so. Um, yeah, it's been such a pleasure to like actually see you and, and talk with you in person. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank, thank you, you so for much. having us. We love your sort of thoughtful vibe. Your yeah. questions Aww. are awesome. Aw, thank you. So Michael and I publish a newsletter on Substack called Brent and Michael Are Going Places, which uh, describes our life as nomads and also gives sort of travel tips and our perspectives, the things that we are talking about today. We write articles about that. It has lots of pictures since I love taking pictures of where we travel. And we're also on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. But mostly, if you want, uh, if you want most access, it's probably best to subscribe to us via the newsletter, Brent and Michael. And Brothers. most of the newsletter is free, so you get most of what we have to say for for you know no charge whatsoever. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler. Make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or support us on Patreon. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, I hope you get to alpaca your bags safely and soon.